Hello, and welcome to Academy Conversations Uncut, a podcast of rare Q&As with the world's foremost filmmakers, hosted by the Academy and released for the first time to the public, unedited. Today's panel was recorded in October 2017 at the Samuel Goldwyn Theater in Beverly Hills, California, discussing the movie The Florida Project, a drama which follows a six-year-old in an impoverished community living in motels around Disney World. We were joined by writer, director, producer, editor, Sean Baker, cinematographer, Alexis Sabe, and writer-producer, Chris Burgotch. The panel was hosted by Randy Haberkamp. Here's Randy. Good afternoon. Feel free to move down if you want to get a little bit closer. Thank you all for being here this afternoon. I'm very honored to... uh, bring three filmmakers of the Florida Project to the stage. Please welcome cinematographer Alexis Vabe. Writer-producer Chris Burgosch. And director, writer, producer, editor, Sean Baker. Glad you had long credits. I needed to compose myself. Um, <laughs> Thank you so for, so much for having us. Our pleasure. Um, I have a lot of things I want to talk to you about. Uh, the first thing uh, that I want to get a sense of is uh, where this project came from. Where, what inspired you and Chris to write this and what was the um, genesis of it? Um, sure. Um, well, my co-screenwriter, Chris Bagash, brought this world to my attention. Um, I honestly did not know. I had never heard of the term the hidden homeless. I didn't know there was a situation going on in Kissimmee and Orlando in which families were living in motels, budget motels, right outside of, of the parks. And um, he was sending me news articles. Um, his mother had recently relocated there, so and he was also sending me photos uh, from his trips down there. Uh, the more I read into it, I was, I think I was drawn to that same juxtaposition as the journalists were of, of, of children growing up in these motels outside of what we consider the happiest place on earth for children. Um, now, at the same time, him and I, we've always been talking about wanting to make a film about children. I am personally extremely inspired and influenced by The Little Rascals. Every one of my films have a wink towards Hal Roach's Our Gang. And... Um, and if you think about what the Little Rascals were, there were these, you know, the, these comic shorts from the 20s and 30s set against the Great Depression, and most of the characters in our gang were living in poverty. And yet, it shine. It was what it was doing was it was focusing on the joy of of, of childhood and and the humor and the heart and 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 I thought this might and be the imagination. Yes, imagination. And I thought this might be an opportunity here to sort of make a present day little rascals and, 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 you know, focus on the comedy of it. That's important as an, as an entertainment medium, the film is to entertain an audience and, and, and have audiences laughing with these kids, but at the same time, hopefully leaving them with this, you know, perhaps an issue they did not know about and, and shining a light on what's happening in the, in the U S right now. So. Yeah, I think there's a lot of times in the, Little Rascals films when when you kind of in a modern day eye wince at what the children are doing, which is certainly very present in your film as well with the lighter and various other things that they the children do. Um, were you at all uh, worried about the sense of danger that your small actors and the situation you were putting your small actors in? 
Oh, no, no. I mean, we have a, we had a union shoot of, and also on top of that, I'm just, uh, safety is number one for me as a filmmaker. We would never put our children or any of our actors in any sort of danger. So all of that is obviously fabricated and faked. The only thing that we had to address early on was uh, the profanity. I mean, obviously the adult content of the film was kept from the kids. And what's really wonderful about these kids that we worked with is that they're so, they're so intelligent. They're these three, well, all four of them are really highly intelligent kids. They were like, you know what? Someday we'll understand this film. I mean, they knew there was adult content there that they just weren't allowed to know about yet. But as far as the profanity, um, when we went about casting the film, uh, we had a local casting company called Crowdshot. Um, that, that we were holding ca casting calls and doing street casting. When we finally decided on our, on our kids, the leads, we said, uh, let's bring the parents back into the back room. And we said, uh, we, we love your children. We had, it would be an honor if they were in our film. Um, but you have to know straight up front, it, they will not only be uh, hearing profanity, but they'll have to utter profanity. And we're going to have to work this out right now about how to do this in the most appropriate way. And, and, um, so we, we also had a casting, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, an acting coach by the name of Samantha Kwan. She worked directly with the parents and we figured out a way of just saying, these are words that are going to come out of your character's mouths. They're only to be used between Sean saying action and cut. And, um, and again, these kids were, were wonderful and very respectful and coming from great background. I mean, their families, um, obviously enforced that. And so that was really the only thing that we felt was something we had to address and, and figure out what to do from the, from the start. So Chris, could, as a, one of the producers and you produced together, could you talk a little bit about the location work and creating what I'm sure was almost like its own little bunker of activity, uh, in that area and creating a sense of disjointed or dysfunctional families, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the locations, uh, and by the way, thanks everyone for coming to see this film here. I'm very jealous of you that you got to see it in the Samuel Goldwyn theater, mm -hmm. by the way. Um, we had a list of, uh, I think I've been location scouting this film since I was four years old on my first trip down there with my parents, just certain places like orange world. I went when <laughs> I was four and that stuck with me. Um, they're just fun to go to those places. So when we were approaching the script before we even had our story, I think we had a bunch of locations that we were trying to work into the story but you don't want to just use a location just for the sake of it looking cool. And so we tried to figure out which ones could organically sort of serve the story. And, um, you know, that's where we came up with the tour sequence and putting the wizard in there. It's kind of like um, a little homage to Hero's journey with Jancy taking her first step into a larger world and little things like that that are just trying to be infused in subtly. Um, and I just want to say one last thing really quickly about the imagination that you mentioned earlier. Um, that's what struck me when I first went down there, and this came to my attention as well, is that even though they, uh, a bunch of kids were in a, mot a motel parking lot that I happened to notice, and they didn't look like tourists. And so I started to do some, you know, digging, and, and that's when I found out as well about the hidden homeless down there, and that it was everywhere but that something about the uh, juxtaposition of it happening in the shadow of Cinderella's castle really tugged on my heartstrings. But they were having just as much fun as we did when we were playing hide and seek as kids in the parking lot and they're playing wiffle ball and manhunt. And so that, that really struck me and I said, I think we have to find a story here. So uh, I want to talk to Alexis about the look of the film, but I also want to mention that um, 
the Academy's building a museum, and one of the things that we have in our collection is Mary Pickford's camera, but we also have the iPhone that Tangerine was yes, shot on. Yes, we are so honored. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> I think that uh, juxtaposition and length of uh, time is quite interesting. Uh, talk about how this film was shot and what equipment you used and, and to get the look of this, uh, and especially you've got a purple motel and you've got the big orange and you've got Florida skies, which I'm sure are very unpredictable because you've got clouds and rain and you ended up having it all in there. So talk about those uh, conditions. I mean, it was very clear from the beginning, talking to Sean, that we wanted to tell the story from the children's point of view. And it was kind of our search was to, you know, to get back to this um, more naive or in, um, young POV where things, you know, even if it's a seedy hotel, it, it's still, you know, magical. And even though um, reality is not great, you, you know, as a kid, you don't see that. You just see surprise and, you know, you see the world with different eyes. So that was our objective all along. Um, we had obviously never being dogmatic. I think we approached most sequences with a very open mind and heart, but that was kind of our leading, you know, intention. So camera low, you know, at the kid's height. And then, um, and then also kind of like, you know, we wanted to pump up the colors a little bit to, to make it seem a bit more magical and kind of really translate a, a kid's POV, you know, so, but still keeping it real, you know, so it was a fine line, I guess, to walk, um, uh, you know, still maybe having people see this movie and, you know, how real is this, how is this a documentary, but at the same time still have a little bit of that magic and a little bit of that surprise and just wonder in the image a little bit, you know. Um, dreamy, I guess, or ice cream, I think we, we call it it many times, you know, have a film look like ice cream, kind of. When, when, I, um, when I look back at my childhood or, childhood or my youth, I always think my senses were more acute back then, like uh, my senses have dulled over the years, but colors used to be brighter, ambience used to be louder, and, or I was uh, maybe just more aware through my senses, and I think that that's what was wonderful about what Alexis achieved with the look where everything was just up a hair above reality almost as if it was being felt through the senses of of putting the audience member back in that mindset of being a kid and having those acute senses that's what the little rascals in movies can do that's right so um my understanding correct me if i'm wrong um the obviously of Willem Dafoe who's very well known but I believe most of your cast was either fairly inexperienced or or even had never made a movie before. Can you talk about that sure. uh, casting process and the mixing and the working with non-actors or or inexperienced actors? Right, right. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I love to I like to divide it into three categories: um, a seasoned actor, a first timer, and a non-professional. Because when I call my first timers a non-professional, it hurts them getting more work in this town. Because <laughs> sometimes the industry here is non-professional; they think unprofessional. The non-professionals were basically people that we found there in the moment, or residents of the motel, or just locals that we said get involved in this one scene crowd scenes, et cetera, sometimes working them in a little bit more, uh, hope, you know, but then there are first timers and that I, I apply that to, to, to Mela, to Bria, to all the kids. Um, they were all found in different ways. I mentioned the, uh, the, the casting call earlier. I wanted the kids to be local. It was very important to me. Um, not only for the accent, the subtle, the slight accent, but also 
so that they could go home at night and feel comfortable. We're, we were taking their summer away from them, essentially. So we tried to make it a summer camp for them. And and so they all came from casting calls, except for Valeria, who plays um, uh, Jancy in the film, her best friend. Um, I found her in Target one night. I, I love doing street casting on my own sometimes. We also had another wonderful street caster by the name of Patty Wiley. And, but we were always on the lookout. And I just was going to Target one night trying to get milk. And there's this uh, beautiful little girl with red, vib- vibrant red hair. And I, I gave the mother, uh, her mother, Eve, my card. And I said, please have her come in for an audition. And I think Eve was really freaked out at first, but she, she Googled me and everything was okay. Um, and, uh, then, um, Bria who plays Haley in the film. Yeah. She came through uh, social media. I actually found her on Instagram, which I know is very unorthodox, but I kind of, with my past films, we've had success with thinking outside the box when it came to casting. So I, I think that's what allowed my financiers and producers, June Pictures, to roll the dice on this one. They trusted me. Um, and I said, no, there's something about her. I really believe in this girl. I, I'm watching her videos on Instagram. She's making me laugh. She's she's already putting herself out there. So I know there's going to be no, uh, she's not going to be intimidated. She's already an extrovert. So I know that. She has the physicality. She has the humor. She's self-deprecating. Let's, let's just give her a chance. And um, she flew to Orlando. Um, she rehearsed, I mean, auditioned with the kids. And we knew from that moment that we were, we we're going to go with her. And then, um, and of course, Willem came through, you know, the agencies and Carmen Cuba who cast the film. And so, you know, there were, uh, we just try to mix it up with casting. <laughs> and how did mixing that work as far as directing is concerned? Well, I do this with all of my films. I really like what happens. It's almost like an alchemy where, where you get the method of the seasoned actor rubbing off on the first timer and then the naivete and the freshness and, 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 and total lack of a method rubbing off on, on the seasoned actor. But, um, and so, uh, it's just, but I have to say it also requires that seasoned actor to be patient and kind. And that's what Mr. Willem Dafoe, I mean, he, he came down, wanted to, uh, he, he really wanted to blend in and was, and was just so great with the kids, so great with Bria and Mella. Um, I just found out recently that he, was, uh, that he helped out Bria in many ways with just words of encouragement, never like lecturing her. Just, just She told me how, how helpful uh, he was to her on set. So, um, yeah, it just, again, we're, there's so much like sort of juxtaposition in this movie in terms of theme. I thought that doing that with casting too might, might just elevate that stuff. So, yeah. So you told me that you shot on 35 millimeter film and at the same time, I want to talk to the two of you about the script a little bit. It seems to me like there are moments that, uh, first of all, most of it feels very spontaneous or real at this, but at the same time, there are some moments where, you know, the, filmmaker in me says that was probably an improv line. How, how tightly scripted was this? And talk a little bit too about, I, I was sitting there through the entire film waiting for something horrible to happen, which was, uh, even though there were moments of levity, this was a dark living situation. So talk about balancing out what your audiences were expecting and, and the surprise and, and finding the tone you did? Well, we actually, we had a 102-page screenplay uh, that evolved over the course of getting the idea in 2011 all the way to shooting in uh, last summer. And 
you know, uh, working with Sean's really thrilling for me because it's not the traditional, you write the script and then he goes and shoots it. You know, we're constantly evolving it right up until your camera's rolling and we're throwing out lines for the actors and, you know, sometimes while his camera's rolling, while, yeah, okay. while his camera's rolling. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it creates for a really spontaneous feel and I love it because then it kind of helps the organic, uh, you know, feeling that you're describing. And then there's other scenes, you know, like the perfume scene where Sean just literally in the script, he'll write, uh, you know, a couple of lines, like the Justin Bieber line, I think was one of them. You'll smell like Justin Bieber. And then it's just candid camera docu style where they just go try to sell perfume. And um, it's this mixture, I think, that creates the organic feeling. But, you know, the ending was always something that we never wavered from, I believe. You know, up until that, uh, you know, the script changed a lot. But that first treatment always had, we knew we were going there. And we knew how that was going to get darker and darker as it played out. Yeah, I always um, encourage improvisation on set just because I, I think it adds you know, some energy and, and, and it gives me, as the editor, a lot of alts in post. But um, it's also, you have to, you have to cast. You have, it, it, you, I've been lucky enough to f always find actors who have the gift of improvisation, and, I, and, and especially comedic improvisation, which I consider a genius you're born with. And Little Brooklyn Prince has that, which is... She's already so incredible, and then to bring that to the table as well. So we knew that very early on from the auditions, and then so we—that's how we went about doing the scene, like where she was, uh, she was eating at the end at the higher end hotel at that brunch, where yes, we had a few scripted lines, but we were shooting what a ten foot—I uh, mean a, a thousand foot mag on that, so it was ten. It was 10 minutes. So she burned through those lines in seconds. And then it was just about documenting her eat and playing with her, asking her questions. Hey, you know, combine this and that, you know, and put it in your mouth and tell us what it tastes like. And she was able to take that direction yet stay in character and never like look at me. She was just in character, um, listening to direction and then giving us stuff back. And she was so wonderful at at like uh, giving some giving us stuff that we would never expect when she goes, oh, I think I'm going to. B you think she's going to say barf? She says burp, and then she and then she gave us that pregnant line, which that's all her. That's Brooklyn, um, and uh, so it was really wonderful to work with these actors who could do that too. I think it's just important. I just wanted to add one quick thing to keep it on story. You know, like even when you let them improv, sometimes they stray too far and they start talking about twerking and farts, and you know, it's 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 a constant sort of bringing them back. Deadpool came out last summer and everything out of Christopher's mouth was Deadpool, Deadpool. Like, oh, who lives in this room? Deadpool lives in this room. No more Deadpool. <laughs> so talk about being your own editor. Um, what, what do you, what kind of uh, thought process do you go through to change hats and to be sure that you're being uh, judicious as an editor, as opposed to the director? Well, you have to have some distance. And my financiers, well, Mark and Jay Duplass from Tangerine were nice enough to give me months off before touching the footage. And it was the same with this in which June Pictures allowed me about three months before really getting into it. So you need distance. Mm -hmm. and, and then you want to approach it almost like a documentary filmmaker where you're putting it together and you don't have to stick exactly to the script. We were totally always, we, it was more about at that point, um, pace and, and character. And so it was, we could actually, we shot it in a way where we could go out of order to a certain degree uh, without major continuity errors. So, um, and, and what, and Chris and I actually had scripted and shot um, more scenes that had to do with adults 
and that focused on adults and were only adults. And then more procedural type scenes near the end of the film that almost came close to law and order or CSI sort of thing where it showed exactly how child welfare services work. And, but even though those scenes worked and all the actors were wonderful in them, when we put them in, they didn't, it, it's the minute that we spent too much time away from the kids, it changed the feeling of the film. And, but, and so we always knew those, those scenes were shot as safety and let's start pulling them out, putting the stuff that one might consider extraneous back in kids on kids dancing on the bed. That's not exactly something that moves the story along, but it's something that allows the audience to, to feel like I'm living the summer with these characters. And that was the most important part. We wanted the, the audience to actually feel like they had spent the summer as one of the gang of friends. It was quite a challenge with the writing. If you remember, there was a lot of sequences that made it into the film, like the Brazilian sequence, that we were going to almost lose because we couldn't figure out a way to keep it from the kid's perspective. And then you just come up with little things about them helping with the luggage and stuff. So mm -hmm. that was one of the challenges of writing this thing, I think. So Alexis, I'm told the last scene was shot on an iPhone and the rest was 35 anamorphic. We'll talk about the iPhone and why that was used. I mean, maybe you need to... Um, I mean, the iPhone, I guess our main reason was stealth. Um, <laughs> that was, you know, um, at the same time, you know, we, we, there was something special about that scene where we really wanted to differentiate it from the rest of the film. And so that just, you know, that, that, that worked out perfectly. You know, we managed to get in there. We actually, um, Chris actually had us some t-shirts made to appear like a family uh, vacation in, in That's what I world. was wondering what this looked like. So what, when you had the iPhone, what, what, what was that like? I mean, are you like this with your fingers or did you have a stick? No, what? no, just with my hand. And Is we're wearing these silly blue t-shirts saying we're like the whatever family. And, and, and I'm running after Brooklyn and, and, um, and Valeria, like not once, but maybe, you know, 11 times, you know, all the way from the entrance. And I'm thinking, Jesus, somebody's going to suspect at some point that we're doing, you know, but no, just, you know, it was just a group of, you know, just like a family outing and getting some <laughs> weird footage there. I don't know. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier the sequence of um, in the, when she's eating in the nice restaurant and the, the improv and all that, and which is a, a very funny and very, um, consistently in character scene for the Mooney character. And then you also have the juxtaposition of the ending where she comes back and to talk about working with that particular, those particular children. Yeah. And first of all, just the keeping that character of Mooney so consistent as well as dealing with the emotion of those scenes. Sure. Uh, well, as I said before, Brooklyn Prince is on a whole other level. I really put her in the same camp as uh, Mickey Rooney and Jodie Foster and the Fannings. She was born to do this. She, she's already, you know, she had experience coming into this. She had done a few commercials. She understands character and scene, even at six years old. But that scene, um, we had scripted, obviously, for tears, but we didn't want to rehearse it. We discussed it. Samantha Kwan, again, the acting coach, discussed it with her mom, and they said, you know, we talked about it at home, and and uh, and, and Brooklyn knows she's going to put herself in that place of somebody not being able to see her friend again. So we never had to go to the place of, like, oh, think about your dog who died or anything like that. No, she came, she came to uh, set that day very confident. We could see that. And we set up the camera and it was over Valeria's shoulder in that close up. 
And um, as we started rolling camera, little Valeria, who's still little Valeria, not in her character yet, started saying, oh, Brooklyn, are we going to have a sleepover or something along those lines? Because they became very good friends on set. And so she was having a little bit of small talk and Brooklyn goes, um, Valeria, I'm going to have to focus right now. I'm about to cry and I have to go to another place. I have to concentrate. We're just like, oh, okay. Here she's taking this seriously. <laughs> Next thing you know, oh my gosh, she started she started taking it to a level we didn't even know. And I remember, I think you were on my right and Sam was on my left, Samantha. And we were just, we were just, I think I was holding Sam's hand and we were just looking and saying, this is incredible. She's really going there. And this is a quite a, this is a performance from a child I've never seen before. And then, um, I wanted to yell cut cause I just couldn't take it anymore. But we had, we waited until she got her last line out, you know, goodbye. And at that point, cut and like everybody it was like a swarm of you know crew members everyone hugging her and she came down and i just uh it's just uh, an incredible moment that she got to that place on her own which uh, i still am so astonished and i still am so incredibly honored to have worked with this little girl so uh your films tend to be about very specific characters in very specific places where you go for a reality. And at the same time, there are places that a lot of people haven't necessarily been before. So clearly your films don't come off as being autobiographical. At the same time, I'm curious, and maybe you want to answer this too. Where is Sean in your films? What, where do you relate to the, uh, characters? That's a good one. Um, (laughs) I think, what we're trying to do is tell universal stories, even if they're in perhaps, you know, uh, groups of people that we don't normally see on, on screen or, 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 or subcultures that haven't been covered much in, in film and television, we're still trying to tell universal stories. So it usually comes down to very, very general topics like, like friendship or love or, or in this one, childhood. And we've all had a childhood. So we were able to pull a lot of that. There's a lot of me. My friends burned down a barn when I was young. I mean, I, we, the whole opening spitting scene came from something that happened to me in my early life. So it was like, I think that was actually pretty easy for us on this film. Uh, if it, that was the autobiographical part, perhaps. And I think you'll agree with me here with, say, our last film, Tangerine, that we wrote together. You know, we spent about six months or more with uh, Kiki and, and Maya, our two leads, uh, just talking to them and in, before we even started writing a screenplay for that movie. But there was that one stumbling block where we were just trying to figure out how, is, how are we going to, what's the audience's gateway into this story? And then it just became clear that it was about this tangerine, when you boil it down, is about a girl with a broken heart. And, and who hasn't had a broken heart? And that was my way in. And I can write from that place. Well, uh, they put the red light on for me. I'd like to go on, but I can't. So anyway, thank you very much for being here. And thank you for staying to listen. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to Academy Conversations Uncut. We hope you enjoyed this unique access to a members-only Q&A at the Academy. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe, and help us reach film lovers around the world. This podcast was produced by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. 